Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Alex Wicken. Alex, great to have you on the show with us. A treat for us. We've taken you away from your perusing the corridors of power uh, to get you into studio for the show. I'm sure you have been diligently reading all weekend the 4,000-word opus that Liz Truss had in the Sunday Telegraph. Lots of things to digest in it. few words missing, sorry being one of them. Um, what did you make of the piece? Oh, it was good fun, wasn't it? Yeah, we we first got wind that Liz Truss was preparing to make an intervention, her first since... <laughs> Sounds uh, dramatic, yeah. Her, her brief time as Prime Minister, um, sort of back end of last week, and I wasn't quite sure where it would come, and then it, it turned out Sunday Telegraph, 4,000-odd words um, of... of Sort of ex- a retrospective look at uh, her time in office, a few weeks in, in office of what went wrong. But yeah, you're right. It wasn't exactly a mea culpa. Someone uh, someone said it was a thea culpa, which I, <laughs> which I thought was, was quite nice. Anything that surprised you? Um, I mean... There was one line, to be fair, where she said that Treasury officials essentially didn't warn her that there was this ticking time bomb with uh, LDIs, which, you know, you'd have thought maybe someone might have mentioned. But I mean, the thing that strikes me as odd is I remember literally just looking at Twitter during this period and seeing people who weren't government advisors they weren't you know necessarily you know major major people politicians mm. making interventions but people pointing out the problems that that were that were coming and you know all, all it would have taken was a was a look at Twitter or a listen to what Rishi Sunak was saying in the Tory leadership contest in the summer perhaps and she might have seen some of the problems ahead well indeed we've been discussing this actually with Harriet Baldwin chair of the Treasury Select Committee we asked her whether Liz Trump should have apologised. First of all, I'm glad that uh, the the bond markets are now back to normal in the UK. And I do think that uh, for the UK, the number one economic priority has got to be getting inflation back in its box. And uh, therefore, fiscal policy has got to run in line with uh, monetary policy and aiming to do that. Um, But whenever I'm asked about this, I think of that famous quote from uh, James Carville that many of your listeners will remember from uh, Bill Clinton's time in office, because before before I went into politics, I was a, a, a an investment manager myself, and it was about how when I, I die, I want to be reincarnated as the bond market because then I can intimidate everybody. And I, and, and I think it was pretty apparent um, over the summer, and I certainly fed this into uh, those who contacted me from the trust campaign, uh, that uh, it wasn't the right economic time mm. to take the steps that she was made, in, intending to make. And, okay. uh, and you know, I think that, was, uh, that became very clear. Would it have been more helpful to the party, perhaps, if she had apologised for the turmoil that was created, rather than continuing to defend the actions? 
Well, I, I suppose if you want me to answer on behalf of uh, of the party, I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, it is good that uh, from the point of view of uh, the mortgage market, which affects uh, many of our constituents, uh, that things now are uh, settled down back to normal. And uh, but people are still paying an awful lot more for their mortgages said, uh, as a result. The Bank of England governor himself has said that uh, the, the increase in rates now is really down to the steps they're taking to tackle inflation rather than the turmoil in the bond market. One of the things that Liz Trusted did say is she criticised the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, for being too static and therefore forcing her hand. Is the OBR too static in the way it produces economic forecasts? Well, I think I think that um, the Office for Budget Responsibility, which you know I personally voted for when we came into power in 2010 in the coalition, right, you know, was an important part of the architecture of giving confidence in the budgeting uh, process in the UK. And I think it has become part of the institutional architecture in, in the UK. I think the reason that it's important is that before that, in uh, the times uh, of the last Labour government, uh, the Treasury was making up its own forecasts and basically basically marking its own uh, homework in terms of what it expected uh, economic growth and therefore the deficit to do. So I think the Office for Budget Responsibility is a, a sort of external check on the homework. Um, mm. But I think the the question about whether or not um, there is a dynamic quality and a sort of Laffer curve effect to tax cuts, uh, I think uh, the Office for Budget Responsibility is is quite linear in that regard. But I think you can make the case, and unfortunately the case was not made in this case, um, for why some uh, tax cuts can actually increase revenue because of that Laffer curve effect. Do you think, from what you just said then, do you believe that there is room to cut taxes or is that argument very last autumn? Well, I think we need to get inflation down. You know, inflation is a terrible tax. It's the worst tax and that affects the poorest the worst. And so, you know, we've absolutely got to get inflation back down to uh, the Bank of England target of 2%. So I think that's got to be the top economic priority. Once that's done and the inflationary pressures are out of the economy, then there's uh, potentially room to stimulate through tax cuts. But, you know, I just don't think it's the right time at the moment. And I don't think it was the right time last September either. Harriet Baldwin, chair of the Treasury Select Committee, speaking to Anna Edwards and I a little bit earlier. We're joined now by Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East and the chair of the Defence Select Committee. We've just been hearing about uh, Liz Truss and her attempted rehabilitation so soon after her short-lived premiership. And, you know, critics have called it deluded, a fantasy, disastrously dim. Should Liz Truss have apologised for her errors that caused interest rates to climb? I, I think that the nation and indeed the Conservative Party paid a heavy price for the folly of the uh, Liz Truss government. It's uh, caused huge damage in our stock uh, with the country and we're having to rebuild that. Uh, she will continue to try and justify to say she moved too, too soon, too quickly um, in this sort of approach of cutting taxes in, in a sort of fact-right manner, forgetting that actually when Margaret Thatcher came in, she raised taxes. She did not, Margaret Thatcher didn't have um, the, uh, the uh, decent positioning of the economy to then be able to do the tax cuts that clearly the Conservative Party and indeed the country would, would like. The responsibility of the, the nation's finances is actually used to be the principal cornerstone of what the Conservative Party was all about, trusted with, the, uh, you know, with, with, with what goes on in the Treasury. And we've damaged that because of... You know, the 44 days that this trust was in uh, was in power. 
So she may wish to justify it, but every time she comes out and says something such as this, it actually undermines the new prime minister, who warned exactly of this during the campaign itself, that you cannot have um, unfunded uh, tax cuts. You cannot borrow £45 billion without consequences. And the market reacted as they did. We have a short period until the next general election. And if uh, we, instead of selfishly promoting yourself and perhaps justifying yourself psychologically as to what you did um, these days, you know, it should be left until after the general election. Right now, we should all be focusing on supporting the Prime Minister. What does Liz Truss have much support within the party? Is she, does she have a realistic chance of, of making a comeback? She has zero chance of making a comeback. Absolutely zero. There will be some cohorts from left tenants that might be promoting what she did, still angry in the manner in which she was ousted. But she damaged the Conservative Party and she was damaging uh, our nation as well. And the good thing about British politics is, unlike the United States, where, for example, if you get a bad egg in the form of Donald Trump, you have to wait four years until the electorate has a say uh, in the UK politics, because we have a different you know, uh, governmental construct, um, we're able to take action straight away. But it is highly unusual in one year to, to remove two prime ministers. Uh, that is unprecedented. Uh, but uh, for different reasons. It had to be done. We're now in a much better place. You know, the the uh, situation is far calmer. The markets have calmed down as well. Uh, and uh, that's all thanks to uh, the, the leadership of uh, uh, Richie Sunak. Just moving on to your beat of defence. We've heard a little bit of skirmishes between uh, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and, and Number 10 on, on defence spending at the coming budget and indeed at, at future fiscal events over the next decade. Some suggestions that the British Army is no longer regarded as a top-level fighting force from a, from a US general. Do you think the UK can cut back? Is that, is that a mis- was that a mistake? Should they be focused on a smaller, nimbler army? Do, do they need to return to huge investment into a, into a standing force? Where do you think uh, the, the money should be going over the next few years, if there is any? Well, the very first questions you should ask yourself when you're designing your defence posture is what are the threats that we're facing? And you don't need to be a defence analyst or an armchair general to know that our world is getting more dangerous, not less. Look what's happening in Ukraine with Russia reinvigorating its interest and its influence in Eastern Europe. Look what happened in the United States over the last few days, you know, with China spying on uh, Russia, showing it has scant regard for the international rules-based order, indeed exploiting it for its own benefit. Indeed, in our lifetimes, you know, China is likely to surpass the United States militarily, technologically, economically. And we really are not waking up to what is happening all around us. So with that in mind, that's where you start from. What are the threats that are coming over the horizon? What do we want to do to keep our nation safe? And as I would hope, given Britain is a member of the permanent member of the Security Council, we take more of a resolve to step forward, perhaps when other nations hesitate. And you can only do that if you invest in your hard power. If you start cutting back and still trying to justify a peacetime budget, your adversaries will exploit that and take advantage of you. And that's exactly what we're seeing all around us right now. Is the government's position on China clear enough? No, not at all. We have this ambiguity to do with China. We hope that they would mature into a global uh, you know, statesman after their massive economic rise. There's no doubt about that. Everybody gave them space to, uh, to act responsibly. But as we see moving forward, you know, they have taken full advantage of, of, uh, of um, 
their own economy, um, but to pursue a very different uh, view of international law. Now exploiting the wobbliness, if you like, the weakness mm. of our international world order. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, Eurosceptic Tory MPs are teaming up with the Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party to challenge a plan to build new customs control posts at ports in the region. It's a new headache for Rishi Sunak. As talks continue with the European Union over a new deal on post-Brexit customs rules for Northern Ireland, joining us now to discuss the latest on all of this is our political reporter, Ellen Milligan, and our correspondent at large, Alberto Nardelli. Thank you to you both for being with us. Uh, Ellen, first of all, how serious is this move by the DUP and members of the European Research Group? So this is in response to a piece of legislation that was proposed a few weeks ago, um, which would kind of start um, the construction of border posts in the Irish Sea for physical checks to be done on goods. Um, This was seen as kind of a a sign of goodwill from the UK towards the EU that it's willing to implement the protocol um, as they um, intensified talks earlier this month. Um, This response by the DUP and the ERG is, it's what we call an early day motion, so it's nothing too tangible. We liken it to like a notice board of things happening in Parliament this this month. But um, it's definitely intended as a warning to the UK that it's not going both sides, the Unionists in Northern Ireland and um, pro-Brexit MPs in the Conservative Party aren't just going to roll over and accept any deal that the government comes up with. It will be a hard fight. Alberto, we keep hearing from both sides that talks are ongoing still between London and Brussels. You've been keeping across developments very closely. How much progress has been made and whereabouts? Um, so I think at a technical level, so the talks between the negotiators, they've made significant progress. And broadly speaking, they can see they have found a landing zone for all the various pending issues. So the customs issues, um, flows of agri-food goods, and the governance of the overall arrangement. I think the two main issues now are on the one hand political, so how to sell the deal to the various stakeholders, especially within the UK, and how to package any agreement and how to communicate it, because that will influence greatly how whatever is agreed will land. But on a technical level, I think they've made significant progress and can see the outlines of what a deal would look like. 
Okay, uh, Alan, one big issue that we know that has to be resolved still is the role of the European Court of Justice. It's very controversial and, and has been for a long time. Do we have an idea of where a compromise might be found there? We're not exactly sure what the compromise is, but a couple of weeks ago, Alex and myself reported that both sides are looking for a for a fudge where the European Court of Justice would remain um, overseeing the protocol in Northern Ireland, but there would be a kind of mechanism in between disputes being raised and it getting to the ECJ um, beforehand. So whether that's an arbitration panel or whether that's courts in Northern Ireland, there would be uh, things in place before it gets appealed to the European Court of Justice. Um, the impression I get is that the EU wants to give the UK space to sell this to unionists in Northern Ireland. I don't think they want to upset the apple cart too much. But if if, if the kind of spin that we're seeing from the UK is that, oh, the European Court of Justice isn't, isn't um, the sole arbiter of European law or something like that, I wouldn't be surprised if they push back and want to reassure their member states that the ECJ is retaining that, um, that role. And Alberto, how important is secrecy to this process? We hear a bit about the tunnel, the famous uh, sort of closed doors uh, that negotiators go into when, when we reach that intensive phase. Bloomberg was first to report that a, a deal um, was, was nearly there um, a couple of weeks ago uh, and followed by others. That, but Number 10 have been very nervous about sort of confirming that. Why do you think that is? What, what is what's the secrecy all about? Well, the reason why it's called a tunnel is that in theory, when they go into the tunnel to have these intense negotiations, they don't want anything to come out um, of that process so that they can control the process. Negotiators can work without the pressure of having to respond to news reports and without the pressure of you know stakeholders saying, oh, I've read this in the papers. Can you tell me what this is about? Um, so secrecy is really important. And especially in terms of the point I made before, that one key element here is going to be how they package the technical agreements and how they communicate those. And the role of the ECJ, to give one example, will be one of the key elements in terms of that, because ultimately, whatever they do agree, the European Court of Justice will be the final arbiter of EU law. Now, does that mean a a formal process to refer any such cases to the ECJ? Do they find a fudge, like a, a um, judicial way of doing that where no one notices that that's still the, that's still the case? Um, so I, one of the reasons why the, the, the two sides, the British government and the European Commission, are very careful uh, when it comes to confirming uh, such reports is, is that they want to maintain control of the, of the communications. They want to be the ones to decide how it's being packaged, how it's communicated, and how they then engage with the various stakeholders. Alberto, I'm, we, we talk so much about how much the deal needs to be sold in the UK to the various stakeholders, be it Eurosceptic Tory MPs or the Unionists in Northern Ireland. How much concern is there about potential pushback on any deal from within the European Union? Are there, par- are there certain red lines that will need to be adhered to to ensure that all the stakeholders on the other side of this argument are catered for? Absolutely. I think it's slightly different in the sense that in Brussels and in most capitals, as you can imagine, there is a little bit of Brexit fatigue. It's quite a few years now that we've been talking about 
uh, checks on checks on uh, chilled meat and the European Court of Justice, and there's a lot else happening in the world. Uh, so the political pressure is less. Uh, however, at the same time, the European Commission has to guarantee the functioning of the single market. They are the guardians of the treaty. And no member state will want issues with the single market because if you do have, say, a bad product that makes its way from Britain into the European single market, at the end of the day, it's the European Commission that will be responsible uh, for that. So member states will want to make sure that those red lines are not crossed. And the Commission itself will want to make sure that those red lines are not crossed because it would be responsible if there are any issues further down the road. Ellen, the DUP are, you know, where this is headed. That's the sort of next question that that is unresolved. Do you think that what we've what we know of the deal so far will be enough to satisfy them, or do they have the ability to sort of prevent this from going through? They definitely have the ability to prevent this from going through because not not in terms of a, a parliamentary vote, which was where Theresa May's deal, for example, got, got was scuppered, um, because um, the DUP actually represents a very small portion of um, the U- the UK Parliament, and also um, Labour leader Keir Starmer has offered Labour votes to get any deal through. But um, the the constant thing we hear from the UK government is that the main reason why the protocol doesn't work is because we don't have a um, functioning um, devolved government in um, in the power sharing executive in Northern Ireland. So if the DUP don't like this deal and they still refuse to take their seats, you continue to have a constitutional crisis in Northern Ireland that has lasted um, for over a year now and has lasted previously for, for several years as well. Um, I think... At the moment, what we understand is that they're being kept at arm's length from any of the the detail of the progress, but I think we'll start to see that change in the next weeks. I suppose what they're trying to avoid is not a repeat of what happened with the withdrawal agreement where there was an agreement done and the DUP effectively torpedoed it and they had to, you know, go and sort of rearrange the deck chairs and come back with something slightly different. Yeah, and it's interesting that the ERG and the DUP, they're talking very regularly. We reported that last week. Um, They're having regular discussions. Um, They seem to be leaning towards maybe a coordinated approach. But this time, instead of the ERG leading the DUP, and ultimately we know that they kind of screwed them over last time by accepting Boris Johnson's deal, um, the DUP have the power now. They are the ones with the leverage, and I expect that the ERG will follow what the DUP do. Yeah, and of course the DUP have said it there, there are seven tests that will allow them to to approve the deal in their eyes as well. Things like avoiding any diversion of trade, no border in the Irish Sea, and giving the people of Northern Ireland a say in the, making the laws which govern them, which of course feeds back into the, the power sharing question as well. I, I wonder about the stakes in, in politics in Westminster. How important is this deal for Rishi Sunak? Well, we've seen Rishi Sunak cave to a couple of like mini rebellions um, late last year, onshore wind planning, etc. Um, he's the reason Alberto spoke about earlier. The secrecy around this is because there's such a worry that they don't get the communications around this correct, that they don't get the packaging around this correct. Um, I think they're carefully trying to work out a political strategy as to how they. 
um, present this to the DUP and members of his own party. Um, his party, as we know, is very fractured at the moment. Um, we've obviously just had Liz Trust come out of the woodworks for the first time this weekend. Um, there's increased pressure on him and Jeremy Hunt in, in the run-up to the budget in March um, to t- cut taxes. So there's all these things happening. He will want to avoid any kind of other rebellion at all costs. Ellen Alberto, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, don't forget, we can find plenty more from Ellen Milligan and Alberto Naldelli uh, on the terminal on Bloomberg.com as well as they keep across all of the developments uh, on this story. In terms of things that we're watching out for later today, the House of Commons sitting this afternoon, the main business, a debate on the annual motions to update Social Security benefits and the state pension as well. There's some action too in terms of uh, committees uh, in various places. The Lords also sitting this afternoon will be looking at police misconduct cases and access to cancer therapies too. There's also the second reading of the retained EU law bill that's coming up later on today but for now that is it from us for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe to the podcast give it five stars so other people can find it on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by chris pitt and leanne gerrans and murray for is on sound i'm alex wickett and i'm stephen carroll we'll be back with more tomorrow this is bloomberg bloomberg uk politics listen weekdays at noon on dab digital radio in london from silicon valley to wall street the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage but what will the next phase of ai adoption look like which companies from big tech to startups will dominate and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie i'm emily chang Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.